and that that trade was how fast they could get a satellite on orbit versus I got to make sure that it's perfect and it absolutely won't fail. Mm -hmm. And so that mindset is changing everything and really flowing through the entire supply base. Welcome to the Weekly Defence Podcast, the show about defence procurement and military technology. We are brought to you in partnership with our sponsor, NAMO. I'm your host, Helen Haxel, Air Domain Editor here at Shepherd Media, coming to you this week from a sunny London. On the show this week, we hear from the Swedish and US Air Forces on their respective platforms, taking part in the Arctic Challenge exercise in North Sweden. And I speak to Raytheon Space Systems Vice President Wallace Lockery about the company's latest developments in the digital battle space. But first, our weekly news roundup, and I'm here with Richard Thomas, Editor-in-Chief. Hi, Helen. Beth Maundrell, Deputy Land Editor. Hi, Helen. And Tim Martin, our Senior Reporter. Hi, Helen to talk about what's caught their eye this week. So, Tim, what's been going on in the air domain? Yeah, so I have news of the US Marine Corps weighing up its uh, future vertical lift options. So, of course, the US Army has taken most of the headlines with uh, FAL so far, and naturally because they're leading it. Um, but the Marine Corps have to consider options for replacement of the H-1 Viper legacy attack and the H-1 Venom utility. And helicopters both, of course, um, made by Bell. So they're holding off on a specific acquisition process currently, but a US Marine Corps spokesperson explained that um, assessment of several technologies to most effectively meet operational requirements is, however, underway. Um, so it's something of an open secret that tilt rotor technology is considered key to any future procurement. Mm. And that's mainly due to speed and range being uh, particularly advantageous to expeditionary mi- missions. And, you know, c- the CFS court, for example, of the MV-22 Osprey. Um, so Bell's in development V280 Valor uh, tilt rotor is the most obvious candidate to fulfill such needs uh, with the manufacturer's program team having recently completed all outstanding flight test targets for the US Army's JMR-TD effort. Um, Leonardo's the other tilt rotor um, that's that's um, been in development at, at the moment is the, the AW609 um, built by Leonardo. Uh, it's so far been absent from the US Army's uh, future vertical lift agenda. Um, but the company has previously indicated to Shepard that analysis of how um, tilt rotor technology could play a future role in the program, you know, at a later date, you know, is being looked into. Um, and as we know, military certification for the the six hundred nine is being targeted for twenty twenty one, um, subject to customer demand. I can't really see an AW six hundred nine being kind of suited to the US Marine Corps. Just in my opinion, I mean, it can only house about nine. And I think the Marine Corps, you need obviously a lot more troops. I mean, with the V two AC, there's it can house fourteen, I think. So yeah, I think that's um, you know that that analysis army, is absolutely <laughs> on the mark. And um, I think it's it's probably just you know mentioning Leonardo just in so far as that it's another uh, you know it's another aircraft in development mm. as far as um, tilt loaders are concerned. But you're absolutely right. There's been. Um, there's been no formal process whereby Leonardo have uh, been involved in future vertical lifts so far. Um, and so you'd have to say that 
Uh, it might be a bit of a red herring to, to certainly um, consider that, uh, you know, and it might be certainly a stretch to, to think that, uh, yeah, the 609 will, will be a serious contender um, or even, you know, eventually be in the running for the, the Marine Corps uh, requirement. Um, but if just to touch on um, the future long-range assault aircraft uh, acquisition, because as we know, there was an RFI for that uh, in April uh, and uh, you know, the US Army are continuing to lead on developments before then. But the RFI also did mention specific US uh, Marine Corps requirements. And so listed in that, um, listed uh, on that solicitation that was issued in, in April mm-hmm. are a 295 knot cruise speed. So Bell, for example, with the V280 have flown at speeds of 280 knots and they have plans to fly at 300 knots in the future, um, you know, with the company having mm. already formally submitted its response to the RFI. So I did put it to Leonardo um, if they had submitted, uh, formally um, submitted a proposal um, for the Flora RFI and they declined to specifically mention whether they had or hadn't. Right. They said simply that the company keeps observing the evolving scenario of US military market However, no future or no further comments can be provided. Beth, on the ground? So, yeah, I've got a piece from one of our contributors, uh, Tim Fish, um, who's looked into uh, soldier modernisation uh, for the Spanish army and um, kind of the latest milestones in a programme known as CISCAP, um, which is looking to enter its test readiness review phase. Um, it passed the critical design review at the end of 2018 and the test readiness review phase is necessary to begin factory tests. What's interesting about this programme, though, is that it is the latest effort by the Spanish army to improve soldier equipment following the uh, collapse of an earlier programme, which was known as the Future Combat uh, Modernization Programme. So in essence, CISCAP is focused on developing fire control and targeting systems, um, as well as communication systems for dismounted troops within the Spanish army. Part of the package includes a new soldier computer and this has been developed by a company called GMV and they've um, actually launched the new computer um, in May of uh, 2019. Um, It's known as the LGB-11. So in 2017, GMV and another Spanish company, Indra, set up a joint venture to undertake the CISCAP programme and in November 2017, the joint venture was awarded a million euros um, for the first phase of research and development. So this R&D phase is not addressing, however, the procurement of the whole soldier system. Instead, it's focused on developing soldier devices where commercial off-the-shelf products um, are not available. All of this is part of the Spanish Army's Future 2035 um, initiative. But just a quick note on the previous programme, because uh, speaking to our reporter, GMV um, indicated that a lot of lessons had been learned from the Future Combat programme. And although under this programme they did not field any equipment, it did enable companies to do uh, testing uh, with different units in several um, different environments, uh, including desert areas in the south of Spain and high altitude cold environments in uh, more mountainous regions. Um, But yes, the Future Combat programme was an ambitious early soldier modernisation programme 
uh, which developed technology during the 2006-2010 timeframe. Um, but yeah, as I said, nothing was able to reach maturity before the project was cancelled due to um, economic instability, um, like obviously around that time. So it'll be interesting to see um, how the new programme, SISCAP, goes forward and hopefully will be a bit more successful than uh, Spain's previous attempts. Into the water, Richard? Into the water, indeed. Good to be back on the podcast. Um, I bring you something from from Mark Selinger over in Washington, D.C. Now, I want you to cast your mind back to a climactic incident occasion um, at the back end of last year with Hurricane Michael. Now, Eastern Shipbuilding Group uh, will provide a report uh, on the impact to its two shipyards from this hurricane in 2018 and how or if the build of up to 25 offshore patrol cutters being built for the U.S. Coast Guard will be affected. So the report is due to be presented to the Coast Guard on the 31st of May. The service will plan to take a few weeks to review the document and then, of course, will brief lawmakers on the findings, give or take, by late June. Just to give you an idea about these platforms, these OPCs uh, will bridge the capability gap uh, between the fast response cutters, which are inshore patrol craft, and the national security cutters, which are frigates and open ocean. Um, And these offshore patrol cutters will replace the medium endurance cutters, some of which are over 50 years old. Uh, Easton said uh, that they resumed operations two weeks after the hurricane struck. Um, In January 2019, um, the company began cutting steel for the first OPC, which will be the Coast Guard cutter Argus. So, Rich, what have, like, the Coast Guard uh, got to say about um, all of this? A couple of interesting things, I have to say. So, uh, sort of mid to the back end of uh, May, Admiral Carl Schultz, Schultz, I should say, who, as you know, is the commandant of the service, uh, said that the uh, well, the said that Mother Nature dealt a pretty tough hand to Eastern Shipbuilding Group. Uh, continuing, he said it's not ideal to run fifty or sixty year old ships, but that unfortunately that's sort of the nature of where we are as a service. Strong stuff there from Schultz. Relating to this report that's being uh, provided and present, well, provided by Eastern Shipbuilding and presented to the Coast Guard, um, Congress officials, and I must caution, it is Congress officials speaking here, they said that any attempt to increase the program's build costs, which would then be borne by the US Coast Guard, should be avoided. Thanks. For more on these stories from the team, please visit our website, shepherdmedia.com. Coming up on the podcast, I speak with Raytheon Space Systems Vice President Wallace Lockery on the company's latest innovations in the digital battle space. And we hear from the exercise director of this year's Arctic Challenge exercise, which is taking place in Sweden this week. I'm here with Pete Rawlins, the account director here at Shepherd Media. So, Pete, the question on everyone's lips is, what's the state of play in the exciting world of advertising sales? Thanks, Helen. Uh, Well, we've seen a number of changes over the last decade or so um, from the advent of kind of new uh, digital advertising solutions outside of just the regular web banners and emails uh, to the resurgence of print advertising uh, and mixed multimedia campaigns. Against that backdrop, Shepard's portfolio of print and digital products provide a tangible and targeted advertising platform to niche sectors within defence and aerospace. 
uh, and clients value the comprehensive analysis we provide after any digital advertising delivery. Uh, this kind of allows them to measure ROI and campaign effectiveness. But against that digital delivery, there's still a place for print advertising, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, our established print products are also a highlight on many client calendars, uh, especially with extensive event distribution at major events across our range of magazines and annual industry guides, uh, which are well recognised and sought after. Well, there you have it. If you'd like to hear more about how you can take advantage of our advertising platforms, then please do visit the advertising section of our website. I'm Beth Mondral, Deputy Land Editor here at Shepherd Media, and I'm joined by Helen Haxel, our Air Editor, who was recently in the north of Sweden for the Arctic Challenge Exercise, also known as ACE. Um, so, Helen, I understand you were up near the Arctic Circle. Scale of 1 to 10, how cold? Um, I would say 3 degrees, so not that cold. Um, <laughs> but... It was quite interesting. I've never been to the Arctic Circle before. I don't know if you on one of your many expeditions, Beth, have been. Yeah, I went uh, to Finland a few oh, weeks ago. Oh, of course ago. you did. Yeah, we, yeah, talked, about... we talked about this on the yes, podcast. We did. Yeah, so we've both had our Arctic experiences we this have, week. We have. It's a bit strange when the sun doesn't go down, but yeah. other than that, sticking to the point. A bit of background or context for you, Beth, is the first ACE exercise was in 2013. And it's now in its fourth iteration. There are 4,000 participants, 100 fighters and 25 support aircraft flying over a course of 10 days, beginning the end of May and taking it into June. So this year's event was led by Sweden. Next time it will be in Finland, which is another host nation alongside Norway which is the third. So while Sweden is the lead, all three assist in the organisation. Participating countries include the US, the UK, France, Germany, amongst others. Now, it's an exercise that's part of cross-border training, which begun between the Nordic countries in 2009. And it really looks at kind of different set scenarios. Um, Some of those include high density and high threat, crisis management operations under a NATO mandate to realistic training environments. And this is obviously all under air power. With something this large, naturally, the major challenge would be the complex scale it works on. But the results will really be shown in the ally interoperability. And this is something that was expressed amongst some of the military personnel that I spoke to from the Swedish Air Force and the Americans. Now, firstly, I caught up with the exercise director of ACE-19, Wing Commander of the Norbatten Wing, F-21, Colonel Klaus Isos, about the exercise and what Sweden's platforms can bring to the exercise. Well, uh, when it comes to the Arctic Challenge exercise, uh, first of all, it's a Nordic corporation. Uh, up to now, it's been the Sweden, Norway and Finland. Uh, and this year around, it's with support of the US. Going forward, uh, we have uh, it's going to be all the Nordic countries uh, to develop the exercise further on. And for the Sweden part, we, uh, we take part with the mainly with the gripping system and uh, lots of our uh, squadrons taking part in that. And how does the gripping enhance this exercise, do you think? 
I think the uh, grip understands uh, very well against all the other platforms taking part. We have the Typhoon, uh, we have the Rafale, uh, Mirage, uh, F-16, F-15. So it's actually the uh, the uh, the standard fighting platforms in Europe and the US that's taking part. We don't have the fifth generation uh, fighters yet as the F-35s, but we'll see going forward. We'll see what happens. And are there any challenges that you're foreseeing with the exercise over the next couple of days, weeks? Uh, well, uh, hopefully we will not have any major mishaps and accidents or, uh, or anything else that could, uh, could uh, lose uh, lives. But uh, for now on, I think we have a quite a robust uh, uh, leadership for this exercise. And how do you think this kind of demonstrates Sweden to the world? How, how, how do you see that as a defence player, I guess? Well, uh, for all our guests, hopefully in a very positive manner. I think our airspace is uh, something that people take with them when they go home. And they say that, hey, up north in Sweden, they have an awesome airspace. <laughs> Thank you. And what lessons can you take forward for the next exercise, perhaps? I think the most important part here uh, is basically how we are designed the red side in the exercise. Mm-hmm. We are getting a lot of support from the US in this time around, and uh, we are going to develop that concept further on. Thank you very much. That was Colonel Klaus Isos from the Swedish Air Force, but I also managed to catch up with Lieutenant Colonel Michael Ferrario, and he is the squadron commander of the 157 Fighter Squadron. And I asked him a bit about the US's involvement with their platforms and kind of what this type of exercise means to them. So we are integrating with the Swedes, the Finns, and some of our other partners and allies uh, in in Arctic Challenge, and we're flying the F-16 in the exercise, and it's really all about interoperability and increasing our ability to uh, work together and, and prepare for any type of operations worldwide. So the entire operation is about working together, planning together, and then being able to execute, and then getting our best lessons learned out of that and improving it every day as we work through those, those various challenges and obstacles. And how does the F-16 help in this regard? Like, What is its key capabilities that help? So the F-16 itself has a lot of different missions. Our specific F-16 does the suppression of enemy air defenses role, also called SEED. So we are, it's our job in this exercise to suppress the surface-to-air threats. And what are the main challenges from this exercise and what lessons can be taken forward? So the main challenge is anytime you get together in any large force is any... You don't get to train to a large number of aircraft on a day-to-day basis. So anytime you get a large number of aircraft in, that increases the complexity significantly. So exponentially, as you add aircraft, the complexity goes up. Then when you add in other nations who operate differently with slightly different tactics, then it becomes even more of a challenge to figure out how you can work together, what your various strengths and weaknesses are, and then how to best... uh, uh, maximize your capability. So that's what we're looking at is is interoperability and maximizing all of our strengths. Well, there you have it. There is the perspective of the US Air Force and the Swedish Air Force on Arctic Challenge exercise, their platforms and their interoperability.
I'm here with Adam Wakeling, the technical guru here at Shepherd Media, who's going to tell us a little something about Shepherd Studio. Thanks, Helen. Uh, so Studio is our co-branded content offering, which gives industry a more creative way to tell their stories. Uh, every project we've done has been bespoke, and we've worked closely with many of the major defence and aerospace primes around the world. In each project, they've brought Studio on board to develop content to support a particular campaign that they've been focusing on. I think the great thing about Studio is the fact that we can get really creative in helping industry tell their stories in new and exciting ways, and then getting that content out to the people that they really want to target. Well, there you have it. Thanks, Adam. If you're interested in learning more about Studio projects and how they could benefit your company, please contact us at our website, shepherd.studio. I am joined by Wallace Lockery, Raytheon Space Systems VP. Nice to have you with us, Wallace. Very nice to meet you guys. You're in partnership with Lockheed Martin and you're participating in the US's next generation polar orbit overhead persistent infrared constellation program. For those of us that aren't au fait with that program, could you just tell us a bit about that program and how Raytheon got involved? Sure. So with Lockheed Martin, we're actually, it's the geosynchronous, right. um, not the polar one. Um, and we started with Lockheed um, about almost two years ago in a competition. Uh, and it's the recapitalization uh, of the next generation of what was called the space-based infrared system. Right. So the um, overhead persistent infrared is really the sort of the name or affectionately coined OPIR <clears throat> for missile warning um, and looking for detections of missile launches uh, and tracking them through their, through their life. It's an area that we in, in Raytheon have been investing for probably 30 plus years. And when the government uh, decided that they needed to bring new advanced technologies to bear because of n new missile threats that are significantly different than where they were when the original system was conceived, um, we were able to respond with our technologies for what, what – uh, they were what Lockheed was looking for and what the government was looking for, um, for a set of capabilities that are, you know, consistent with what's happening in the world today. So what's kind of next then? What are you looking at at the moment? Relative to missile warning? Yeah. There's a, you know, there's a whole series of things going on um, across the world, uh, not just in the U.S., relative to missile warning and missile defense. And if you if you take a look back historically at what we've done, what Raytheon's done, we built the sensors for uh, what was called STSS, the Space Tracking and Surveillance System for the Missile Defense Agency. We built um, an experiment for the Air Force Research Lab called IRIS-X. Um, so this OPIR area is an area that we have a lot of history um, and have done a lot of things and invested in technology. And, and so it's, you know, what we're really doing now is trying to respond to what our customers, whether they be government or partners, primes, um, are asking for. And so that's everything from working with Missile Defense Agency on where they're headed. <clears throat> the U.S. Defense Department has an organization called DARPA that has a series of programs which they're looking at in low Earth orbit um, and kind of across the board really 
trying to respond to what our customers' needs are. You mentioned DARPA there. So when you consider DARPA, Blackjack, Contract, amongst others, focusing on the low Earth orbit constellation of small satellites, what can Raytheon really bring to the table in this area? So Blackjack's a bit different than what is happening in, you know, let's say the next-gen OPIR program. And and what's different is a couple of things. One, it's a low-Earth orbit um, and so it's a much larger constellation of systems than necessarily just a geosynchronous satellite, a single geosynchronous satellite. So that's an area where we as a company really leverage things that we do in our airborne business um, in production where we will build significantly larger numbers than the small number of things that we normally build in space. So we're bringing together a bunch of technology <clears throat> and capabilities that we have as a business for design for manufacturability and reduce cost, taking into account those longer production runs and looking for areas where on the mission assurance side, we can make trades um, for a, a larger constellation and get reliability through a constellation versus just through a single satellite. So it's a, it really is a big paradigm shift for us uh, and I think the entire industry in, in what DARPA is trying to do. Thanks, Wallace. Um, so quite a general question, but I mean, how does Raytheon support the US and allies on resilient capabilities against the current and future battle space posed by adversaries? So if you can take wow, all that's, that, that's, just to be kind to you. Yeah, that's, that's really, uh, that's wide open. Um, <clears throat> well, that's, it's an interesting question. I mean, uh, I'll try to answer it. Um, <laughs> we, across the board, really depending on what, um, you know, what, what we get to see from what the customer's challenges are is, is a lot smaller than, and, and rightfully so. So what, what we really try to do is bring together the business that I run and, and much of the Raytheon business is about technology and, and how do we bring technology to bear that can satisfy our customers' missions, mm-hmm. um, both in satisfying whatever the mission is you're trying to perform, but also being able to operate through whatever that threat environment is. So um, across the board, whether it be sensor, um, I'll say sensor resiliency against any kind of threat, um, whether it be uh, on the radio frequency side, things like electronic warfare or jamming, those are things that we as a corporation do pretty significantly. Um, and we in the space business try to bring any of those technologies and capabilities to bear that we can um, and be responsive to our customers. So, um, How should governments look to enhance their business processes and acquisition models to ensure that they can rapidly deliver space capabilities to the warfighter? There's, there's a lot of changes that are happening. If you, if you look historically back at space, um, the types of technologies that we've brought to bear to deliver space capabilities have oftentimes been either repurposed, um, whether it be electronics or optics, um, and usually that's been 
that that's can be very costly sometimes mm-hmm. because you've got to take something that wasn't built for a radiation environment and harden it or um and, and it was never sometimes never built for that mm-hmm. we're seeing a lot of things in the marketplace and a and a kind of a convergence of a series of things one is the the proliferation of low earth orbit mm-hmm. uh I'll just say opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, when you look at what SpaceX and OneWeb and now Amazon and Telesat, these large low Earth orbit constellations, it's really bringing a lot of technology into the industrial base in quantity, which we haven't necessarily had before. So what we're trying to do is partner across the supply base to really bring that capability and those technologies to bear in a way that allows us to provide something not at a lower price point than what we could have done before. So when I when you talk about what can we industry do in partnering with our you know our government counterparts, mm-hmm. there's a lot of discussion ongoing right now relative to requirements trades and and those trades rel- specifically around risk and how quickly I can deliver something and what kind of risk the government or our customers are willing to take. A, a great example is we're building right now the um, a number of payloads for Digital Globe wow. for their next generation constellation called Legion. And that was a great example for us because it was a customer that really understands what, what they're trying to do, their mission, which is providing um, imagery to the marketplace and going towards a new construct in their constellation of a larger number of satellites than what they currently fly. And that there were a lot of trades in that discussion on cost and schedule and risk and, and capability. Um, that model is something that we're having a lot of discussion with our government counterparts on. Here's, here's how this works. Here's the way in which we're partnered together to deliver this capability with speed and how we make trades, um, which is very different than in the past where a requirements document shows up at our at, at the contractor, we all bid on it, and then we kind of go our separate ways mm-hmm. until um, if we win, then, then it becomes a matter of, okay, the trades aren't necessarily always there. So we're, it, it's actually really exciting right now um, in what's kind of happening in the, in the industry. And how has the space industrial base been disrupted in the past five years and where do you expect it to be by 2025? So if you, if you back to the, the, the biggest changes or, or I'll say um, disruption that we've had is this, this proliferated LEO mm-hmm. um, activity that we're seeing and, and proliferated LEO across the board in the commercial side really being the driver um, right now, the we haven't had the quantities of satellites that we're talking about right now, and that really, you know, for us as a as a provider, mm-hmm. that drives down all the way through the supply chain into the piece parts, because a lot of the electronics, in particular, or optics, many of these suppliers that are in the industrial base were were built to build quantities less than five. Mm-hmm. And now we're talking about quantities in the hundreds and thousands. And so that is at every level, it's driving the potential for change 
and for all of us to try to figure out how do we scale to something that we've never really done. Um, and, and what does that mean, not just in what we buy, but in how we build things, the amount of testing we do, um, and the requirements uh, across that constellation. It, 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 there's a great test case, not test case, but a great model, mm-hmm. which is if you look back at Iridium, yeah. you know, back 20-plus years ago, mm-hmm. you know, Iridium had a model that was they were going to have a satellite from kitted on one end of the dock out in seven days, everything built and tested. Yeah. And that was a, I mean, it was just, I, I did, um, wrote a paper in, in my master's on, on Iridium. And it was, it was one of those things where they were saying, okay, well, we're going to accept a certain number of satellites will, mm-hmm. will attrit and say, as a constellation, we were able to provide this capability at this performance level um, and that that trade was how fast they could get a satellite on orbit versus I got to make sure that it's perfect and it absolutely won't fail. Mm-hmm. And so that mindset is changing everything and really flowing through the entire supply base. So it's not as if it's brand new, yeah. um, but it's certainly happening in, in larger numbers than right. than we've seen. There's We're really excited in, about the what's happening in the space industry, but also the significant interest across the international community mm-hmm. um, and the opportunity to both partner with um, industry participants as well as government. And so it's something that uh, we at Raytheon, you know, we have a, a large international footprint and partnerships around the globe on things that we build for whether it be radars on fighter aircraft or ground-based radars for missile warning and missile defense um, and a whole range of systems, communication systems. It's not necessarily something that we've had a great opportunity to do from the space side. And so we're seeing that change. And so that's really exciting. So coming over, you know, we're, we spend a lot more time, which most of the folks in the space industry on the U.S. side have not had a lot of opportunity to engage with the international community in a in in a real um, constructive way on things like, you know, how do we scale an international supply chain? How do we build indigenous capability to actually manufacture um, capability outside of the U.S.? So that's, we're, we're really excited about the opportunity. And is there anything you'd like to end our conversation with? Any key takeaway for our listeners? Well, I, you know, we're... We are spending um, a, a lot of time, like I said, outside of the U.S., and so we're really uh, looking for opportunity, um, and that's everywhere from you know, early-stage technology and startups um, where we can partner mm-hmm. um, all the way to uh, our customers and bridging into new customers where we have capability that if it makes sense and mm-hmm. it's the right thing for um, the the customer or the country and the industrial base uh, really looking for opportunity to partner. So, Thank you very much yeah. for your time today, Wallace. Thank, Thank you. you. This episode of Shepherd's Weekly Defence Podcast was brought to you by our sponsor, NAMO. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, please head over to shepherdmedia.com to access all our news stories and subscriber content. We'd love to hear what you thought of the podcast, so please do subscribe, rate and give a review on iTunes or other podcasting platforms. 
Thanks for listening. 